good evening. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, genuinely, on budget day too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for taking the time. Uh, Marcia, thank you for your incredibly kind words of introduction. She's great. <laughs> um, yes, as Marcia said, I'm, I'm a husband to one, a father to three. Um, we live in Brixton. And uh, I joined the Met in September 1992, same year Gary Streeter entered Parliament for the first time. Um, I, I don't know whether that qualifies either of us as veterans. Oh, but oh, <laughs> I'm being heckled already on the second row. Um, <clears throat> and until February of this year, um, I continued to serve in the Met. Uh, but I was retired on medical grounds, uh, and Marsha alluded to the reasons why, uh, and I'll say uh, a little bit more about that in a short while. But I, I wanted to begin this evening by saying uh, a little bit about a job that I love with all of my heart and soul. Uh, I just got buttonholed in the room next door by the policing minister. Uh, he's now slipped away, though, so uh, uh, he knows what I think about a job that I love. It's extraordinary. I reckon, with all due respect to the present company, it's the very finest thing any one of us could ever choose to do with our working lives. And actually, when you strip away an awful lot of the noise and nonsense that's spoken about policing, all that really doesn't matter, it remains about as extraordinary as a job could be. The job of a police officer is to save lives, to find the lost, to comfort those whose hearts are breaking wide open on the worst days of their lives, to defend the weak, to protect the vulnerable, to confront the dangerous, sometimes even and not terribly far from where I'm standing, to risk it all. Pause and think about those things for a moment. They are what we ask and expect of our police officers. And I, for one, wouldn't have it any other way. Two of the stories in the press over the weekend, the heart attack that was suffered by Glenn Hall, the former England football manager. His life was saved by an off-duty special constable, an off-duty volunteer police officer, who relied on the training that he had received as a police officer, and has given Glenn a fighting chance. A horrific helicopter crash outside of the Leicester City football stadium. The first people there were two police officers one of whom tried to break into the helicopter to rescue those inside until he was pushed back by the flames. The painful privilege of policing is to venture repeatedly into the hurting places, in amongst the broken lives and broken homes, the broken hearts and broken bones. Police officers go where most wouldn't, and they do what most couldn't. And 
and endlessly proud of the fact that they do. It's an extraordinary job. And these are extraordinary times for policing. Times, in fact, of extraordinary challenge. And this is part of the conversation I was having with the Minister just now. I think, actually, that these are the most challenging times for policing in this country since the end of the Second World War. That's not hyperbole. It's not a soundbite. It's not some form of exaggeration for effect. I just think it's a simple statement of fact. The most challenging times for policing in this country since the end of the Second World War. And it's for a combination of reasons. Firstly, crime is rising. Certainly crime of the most serious kinds. But it's not just crime. Demand on policing is also rising. Not least as a consequence of gaps that have appeared in the delivery of other critical frontline services. Mental health, adult social care, youth services. So often policing remains the agency not just of first, but also of last resort. Crime is rising and demand is rising. But at the same time, complexity is rising. The complexity of the environment in which police officers operate. Having been uh, accused of oldness by the Honourable Member. Um, I joined at a time when we wrote our crime reports on paper. <laughs> And they were filed in a ring binder in the CID office where an invariably grumpy detective sergeant would then challenge your right to have done so in the first place before begrudgingly allocating it to someone to investigate. They were, in some ways at least, more innocent times, or at least less complicated times. I think now of the world in which policing operates, where crime is crossing not just geographic borders, but also technological, digital frontiers. And the work that the police are called upon to do in relation to organised crime, international terrorism, some of the most serious offences we could possibly be investigating, human trafficking, child abuse. Um, it's just a whole lot more complicated than it used to be. Crime is rising, and demand is rising, and complexity is rising. And at the same time, risk is rising. In the month of October alone, there have been stories in the press of at least five police officers who've been very seriously injured in the line of duty, including two, if not three, who've been stabbed, two who've been hit by stolen or suspect vehicles. And it seems to me that those stories are becoming more commonplace. More police officers being more seriously injured than I can remember, ever. And of course, at the same time, each one of them <coughs> remains an explicit terrorist target. And nowhere is that more apparent than here. And I pause often. And I remember E.C. Keith Palmer, G.M., and his widow and their daughter. Crime is rising and demand is rising and complexity is rising and risk 
is rising just at the point when resources have fallen to the lowest level in a generation. And can I be at pains to point out here, of all places, that I'm not trying to make any kind of political point. I'm just simply telling you what I see about the job that I love with all of my heart. The recent National Audit Office report into police budgets highlighted the fact that in the last eight years, the number of police officers and staff in England and Wales has fallen by 44,000. And that's a telephone number to me. And the reality is that out there, what I see amongst people who are not just old colleagues, they're still friends, I see fewer people with fewer resources doing a job that is more difficult, more demanding, and frequently more dangerous than it's been at any point in my lifetime. These really are extraordinary times for policing, and times that have real consequences for the real lives of real people. The real people that policing serves out there in the community and the real people who are policing, the officers and staff who do the job. And, and I want to say something about them briefly now. About the extraordinary men and women who do the job. One of the former commissioners, now a member of the House of Lords here, Lord Condon, used a wonderful phrase when he was still serving that I've often repeated since. He spoke of the everyday heroism of the men and women who police our streets. I saw that pretty much every day of my working life. And I need to make a confession. I love them. I mean, I really love them. Now, to be clear, I'm not a blind apologist for policing. Sometimes, whether individually or institutionally, and sometimes both, policing can get things dreadfully wrong. And the consequence, when that happens, can be all, all the more damaging by virtue of the position that policing occupies in society, the promises that we all made as officers and the powers that we were all given to serve without fear or without faith. Sometimes policing gets it terribly wrong. And we should never shy away from holding it up to the light. We should never back off from asking difficult and awkward questions. But it's important to say that most of my experience, most of the time, was of serving alongside a group of men and women who were just about the finest that people can be. Men and women of remarkable character and courage. Men and women like Keith Palmer. The everyday heroes and heroines who police our streets. Now here's the thing that troubles me at the moment. Some of those heroes and heroines are breaking under the load and under the strain. 
because I tell a little bit of my story, <clears throat> I have the privilege of others telling me their stories. And they usually do so quietly and confidentially. An email or a private message on Twitter or just a conversation in a corridor. And just three examples of messages I've had uh, earlier this year. The first was from a senior detective in the Met's murder command. He'd reached the 29 and a half year point of his 30 year policing career. A distinguished policing career. And he'd reached that point where he might be forgiven, expected even, to pause for a moment and reflect on all that he had achieved and to wonder for a moment and look forward to the next part of the adventure. But in his message to me, he was unable to do either of those things. He signed off with a line that I haven't been able to get out of my head ever since. He said to me, I am exhausted beyond words. Around the same time, I got a separate message uh, about another colleague with about 20 years service working on a South London borough who had been rushed to hospital from the office with heart palpitations connected to the strain of the day job. And he was okay, but it was an indicator. And another friend who I was exchanging texts with just last week, who's got 30 years service, has been involved in some of the most high-profile cases in the Met's recent history, struggling at home to recover from repeated heart surgeries. These are the very best people within policing, quietly telling us that all is not well. And we can't simply shrug our shoulders and pretend that we don't know. Five and a bit years ago, I was one of the ones who broke. I was the borough commander just across the water uh, in Southwark. It was the best job I ever had in my life. I loved every single passing minute of it. Surrounded by an extraordinary team of people who were bringing in extraordinary results on an almost daily basis. In about my second week there, there was a knock on the office door and the grinning face of the detective sergeant from the crime squad appeared. He said, come now, because they all talk like that. Come now. <laughs> well, the blokes, anyway. Come <laughs> can I have a word? I said, come in. He said, come now. We've had a few tons in. And I welcomed him in with open arms for tea and medals and handshakes. Uh, and I was so new to the borough, I wasn't fully up to speed with everything that was happening. Uh, and unbeknownst to me, they'd been involved in a long-running joint operation with the National Crime Agency. And they'd come in that day with literally tons of cocaine and cannabis, uh, and a number of pretty serious prisoners from fairly high up drug supply chain. And so we had a fabulous conversation about the days when it all goes right. Uh, and I was able to thank him and send him out to do the proper work. And as he left the office, I, I remember just kind of settling back into my chair and thinking, this is a proper place to work, and these are proper people. And for as long as I was there, it was my absolute privilege to serve alongside me. But I started to get very seriously ill. 
And the kind of aggravating problem, I suppose, was that I didn't realise that that's what was happening. I didn't understand that that's what was happening. And it came in three stages, uh, and I'll just explain them very briefly to you uh, before getting to the happy end of the story. And it began with an overwhelming sense of exhaustion, of the kind I just couldn't shake. I woke up exhausted. I stumbled through the day exhausted. And I went to bed exhausted. You see, I told myself that, and I've been a police officer now for more than 20 years, you're used to being tired. I'd worked my fair share of shifts, I'd worked my fair share of pretty long shifts under pretty intense pressure. I was still doing my share of on-call work uh, with the phone on 24 hours a day uh, for things that might happen out of hours. And at that point, our three children were still under the age of 10, and I'd reached that point in a man's life in their early 40s where nothing worked quite as well as it used to. And, and I just told myself that tiredness was a fact of life. That's just how it is at this point in time. And so I did nothing about it. I ignored it and carried on because there was a job to be done. And because when you're a police officer, the calls never stop coming. And interestingly, of course, when those calls come, it's not often from the person ringing to tell you that they're having a good day. I was exhausted beyond words. And increasingly, I began to feel overwhelmingly anxious. Now, anxiety, like tiredness, was not in and of itself a completely unfamiliar thing to me. I've been anxious on a number of occasions in my life, in circumstances where anxiety might have been a perfectly healthy, reasonable response to exams at school. The day I asked my wife to marry me, particularly when she insisted I did so on three separate occasions before she said yes. <laughs> on the days our three children were born, uh, not least the last one who decided that a standard arrival was entirely beyond her. Uh, and that she was going to appear by emergency C-section. And there was this moment where I watched my wife on a trolley being rushed into theatre, the love of my life. And I was thrown a set of medical scrubs and told to get changed, and I stumbled into the nearest loo and tried to put both feet into the same trouser leg. And in that moment, I like to think I had a, a reasonable feel for what anxiety might be, for how anxiety might feel. this now, and it began to wake me in the middle of the night, in a state of wide-eyed, white-knuckled, teeth-clenched terror. So bad that I'd have to wake my wife up, just so that she could hold on to me and tell me that everything was going to be okay. But then the morning would come, and there was a job to be done, and the calls keep coming. And you know, it didn't occur to me that I was ill. It honestly didn't cross my mind that I might be in need of some medical help. I just thought it was one of those challenges that life throws your way. And then I just needed to grip my teeth and keep going. And then the depression came. And it 
was the depression that broke me. Broke me into a, a thousand small pieces and left me in a heap on the ground. Uh, and I ended up being off work for more than seven months, having barely missed a day in my career up to that point in time. Uh, I got back to work eventually, but I never made it back to operational duties. To the job that I really, truly loved. And ultimately, that's the reason why um, I was medically retired at the end of February this year. But it is a story with a happy ending. Uh, and uh, I'll finish in a moment by just saying a little bit about how I've mended and tried to stay well. Just before I do, though, I want to say a couple of things about depression. Because it seems to me that it's one of those subjects we still don't talk about enough. It's still one of those subjects that can have a real sense of stigma and shame attached to it. And it seems to me, therefore, that it's important to talk about it. And the more we talk about it, the less that sense of stigma and shame can persist. And I don't know whether any of you have ever suffered yourselves or whether anyone close to you has. But for those of you who haven't, Depression is not the same as sadness. In fact, sadness is to depression as a puddle is to the Pacific. They're both wet, but that's about where the comparison ends. And depression in terms of its sheer scale and depth and intensity is unlike anything. <coughs> experienced in my life before it is the single most horrifying and terrifying thing that I've ever encountered. It took me as close to the edge as I've ever been, closer than I ever want to go. The extraordinary thing though is that it's possible to mend. In some ways, certainly deep down inside, I'm better now than I've ever been in my life. There are some things I can't do anymore racing around in police cars and staying up late. But there are lots of other things I can do. And in many ways, I feel enormously grateful. There are three very simple, practical things that have helped us get better. And then I want to finish with three personal things. Uh, and when we get to the questions, if you want to ask about depression and, and mental illness, you are incredibly welcome to do so. I don't mind in the least talking about it, and there are no subjects that are off limits. Three practical things, though. The first thing was learning how to rest. It seems to me that we live now in a world that is moving far too fast. Far faster than is good for any of us. I think it was Gandhi who said, there is more to life than increasing its speed. And it seems to me that we all need to find ways to slow down. Now, rest doesn't necessarily mean the absence of physical activity. There's plenty of research that, that makes the link between physical exercise and good mental health. I try and get out every day to walk the dog at the very least. But sometimes rest does mean switching off, slowing down, taking time, 
taking the phone and the iPad and the laptop and every other infernal device that inflicts our lives and leaving them in the swing bit in the kitchen and just taking time to breathe. Learning how to rest. The second thing has been learning how to talk. This is of particular relevance, I think, for the men in the room, but maybe of some interest to all of us. Uh, I was referred to Anna, my counsellor, as an emergency case when I first fell ill. I continued to see her for more than five years afterwards. Um, I'm only taking a break now in order that Ben, my wife, can have a turn because boy, has she earned it. Not all of us need that level of professional assistance over that length of time, but it remains universally true that it's good to talk. There's never anything to be gained by bottling something up and burying it away and hoping that it goes away. Because I promise you it'll find its way out in the end. It's good to rest and it's good to talk. And the third practical thing from my point of view has simply been to follow doctor's orders. First thing I did when I woke up this morning was to take an antidepressant. And I've done that every morning for the last five and a half years of my life. I'll do it every morning for the rest of my life if I need to. Feel remotely ashamed. I've got two younger sisters, uh, both of whom are extraordinary. The middle one has survived cancer twice in her life, once in childhood, once more recently, when she had thyroid cancer. Uh, and as a consequence of that, she had her thyroid removed. Uh, and she's now right as rain. But without a thyroid, her body now no longer naturally produces something called thyroxine, which I understand is helpful. Um, I mean, having it is helpful. Um, she's not able to produce it herself anymore. But wonder of modern medical miracles, she can take a single tablet every day that makes up for the deficiency and allows her to live an otherwise completely normal life. So why should it be any different with my head? We don't understand heads quite as well as we understand thyroids. And maybe that's part of the problem. It would appear that something's missing up there and that I can take something each day that helps. So why would I hesitate? It's important to say that medication doesn't work for everybody, but it does work for a lot of people, and it works for me, and I'm not going to be ashamed of So those were three very practical things that have helped me in my recovery. And then just finally, to close with three more personal things. I want to talk about love. I want to talk first about the love of my friends. My friends outside of work and my friends inside of work. Just extraordinary people who turned up on my front doorstep and didn't try to fix me. They just loved me. And they walked alongside me for as long as it took until I was able to walk on my own again. And theirs were kindnesses that I'll never forget. My friends. Secondly, my family. My extraordinary wife. Everyone calls her Bear. One or two of you have met her. Um, can I say, if you want to take something practical away from the scene, can I suggest, particularly to the younger ones in the room, whatever else you do in life, 
make sure you marry a North Yorkshire farmer's daughter. <laughs> I have found that it's the solution to a great many of the challenges that life puts our way. And her love and the love of our three children is an extraordinary thing. I, I have discovered in this and through this depth of love that I didn't know existed, that I didn't realise was possible. My friends, my family, and finally, my faith. I am an entirely imperfect Christian. I often say now that I'm less certain of more things than I've ever been in my life before. But in the midst of all of this, I discovered something of the mystery of the thing called grace. The rumour that I am loved beyond measure, just as I am. Perhaps the Beatles were right all along. Perhaps love really is all meaning. And as I look around me at the world around me, just at this particular moment in time, it seems to me that that may be more true now than ever before. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, how inspiring was that? I'm sure it's, it, it, it meant there's lots of your heads at the moment and John so kindly said he will answer questions. John, thank you very much indeed for that. Earlier this year there was a report from the Garda Police indicating that uh, roughly 27% of the members of the police force over there were either suffering from PTSD or uh, at risk of PTSD. And with increasing demand and reducing resources one of the challenges, I work for a force outside of London, but one of the challenges that I want to ask you about is how, how do we tackle the problems that officers face, one with the stigma of admitting that they might be weak, and the second part of that is how do we then deal with the stigma of feeling that if they do admit that they're weak, that they're going to end up being sidelined out of the force, because on a day-to-day -day basis, the officers I meet in stations in the county I come from, uh, that is the biggest hurdle they have to stick their hands up for help. You know, it's a really good question. Uh, I, I think it's a question that, that probably applies to wider society as well. You know, I, I made reference when I was speaking earlier to, to the sense of stigma and shame that continues to persist uh, around issues of mental health or mental ill health. I suppose one of the most reassuring things I can say is that I look particularly at policing at the moment because that's what I know best. Um, every sign I see is a positive one, is a sign of progress. There are conversations being had now in policing that weren't being had even two or three years ago, never mind five and a half years ago when I fell ill. You know, this. I kind of had this sort of Damascus Road moment about the inevitability of exposure to trauma when you're a police officer or a paramedic or an A&E nurse or, you know, there are certain unique professions where by design 
you are going to encounter trauma repeatedly. But when I joined, and for the first 20 years of my career, up to the point where I fell ill, I'd never heard that talked about. I'd never heard it acknowledged. We just shrugged our shoulders and said, well, that's the job. I would think about, or I think now, about our specialist collision investigators who turn up to three and four fatal road accidents in a week and see things that are beyond the comprehension of most of us. And for years and years, they've just shrugged their shoulders and said, well, that's the job. I think about our murder investigators who turn up repeatedly at murder scenes and then later the same day or the following morning at post-mortem and who see things and do things that are beyond the comprehension or the imagination of most of us. I think of our counter-terrorist investigators who are watching ISIS execution videos frame by frame, repeatedly, in an effort to try and secure evidence, critical evidence, but who are exposed to a level of inhumanity that's beyond even my comprehension as someone who served for more than 25 years. And they shrug and they say, well, that's just the job. And to some extent, they're right. It's what you join to do, it's what you train to do. But it doesn't mean we should be blind to its consequences. Um, and what I see now in policing, and we've still got a long way to go, as we still have in wider society, but what I see now in policing is a much wider awareness of the fact that this is an issue and a much wider understanding of the need, therefore, to do something about it. Um, and uh, I, mean, I could talk for a long time, but others may want to ask questions. I, I think we're heading in the right direction. Thank you very much. Gary. Thank you. Johnny, thank you so much. Very inspirational talk, as expected. Um, and would I, I would also like to say that the culture here in this place is, particularly amongst men, is you can't show weakness. So it's interesting to hear what you say about that. But I want to ask you about the clash or perceived clash. When you knew that you were suffering from depression as a Christian, mm -hmm. did you ever think, well, I can't have depression because I'm a Christian. You know, we don't, we don't have, we don't suffer problems like that, and so on. And how did you cope with that kind of dichotomy and um, conflict? That's an absolutely brilliant question. Uh, whether I do justice or not to it is is, is another matter. So when I, when I first fell ill, it was a crisis of everything. It was a crisis of work, it was a crisis of life, and it was a crisis of faith. Uh, I'm a vicar's kid. Uh, I, I grew up in the vicarage, and I knew the answer to the Sunday school questions. And, uh, and I've always had a faith of sorts. I, I've never had that kind of prodigal experience of venturing off to some fathers. I'm fairly square, to be honest. I, I've always remained fairly close to home. I, I, I grew up kind of, I was a good boy most of the time. Uh, and, uh, and so I got to this point of absolute fundamental crisis. And my religion utterly failed me. It utterly failed me. It, it did me no good at all. And for more than six months, I didn't get to church. 
but that same length of time I could barely read my Bible. Uh, and the gentleman's front at the back, I could hardly say a prayer. To be honest, there was a period of time where it was as much as I could do just to keep breathing in and out. Um, and that's not melodrama, that's just a simple statement of fact. But there was a moment relatively early on in my illness where I was resting quietly at home because that's all I could do. And a single line from the Psalms came to mind. And it was the line that said, be still and know that I am God. And for six months that was my Bible reading. And for six months that was my prayer. Uh, and for all of my lifetime spent in Sunday school and church, and this is the point about grace, I think I still thought that I somehow needed to earn God's approval and God's affection. I think I still needed, or I think I thought that I still needed to be a better man, a better husband, a better police officer, a better Christian. And that somehow God's approval was dependent on those things. Uh, and I found myself at this point in my life where I had nothing to give. I was just an utterly broken man. And the question in my mind is this enough just to be still and to know that he's God not to pray a prayer not to do a thing not to tithe 10% of my income before tax <laughs> not to tick a dozen other religious boxes is it enough just to be still am I enough just as I am in my broken state and breathtakingly, it turns out that the answer to that was yes. And that, for me, was the beginning of the discovery of grace, which is this word that I've known my whole life, but only now have begun to understand. Thank you very much, John. Um, I was a police officer for 15 years, and I think now that's about the average of service of police officers, rather than 30 years' service. Um, which I think you recognise, and I think that's a reflection of some of the things you say. Um, as a homicide detective myself, I dealt with lots of difficult situations. Um, and I remember once going to my superintendent on a particularly difficult and challenging day where I protected a mother for something very traumatic, and he said to me, rather in your head than in hers. And I think that sums up the burden of public service for lots of people. And I think you're right, the, the approach by the police is much better than it ever was. What worries me is that I hear time and time again of police forces centralising their welfare support. Um, where I live, in Northamptonshire, I know that our welfare officers and support and HR support is based in Cheshire. I know most people's geography is probably fine, but that's a long way away. <laughs> I was able to nip into our welfare and get the support I needed very, very quickly. But I know, I think with the Metropolitan Police, the welfare service is not even in London anymore. And I think the HR support is not there anymore. And, I, and that really worries me. And I just wondered if you could comment on that. Yeah, it's a really good point. So, so the, the Met's occupational health provision is now outsourced. It's not in-house. Uh, and it's pretty limited in scope. Um, you know, I, I made reference earlier to, to the 44,000 people who've come out of policing just in England and Wales, just in the last eight years. 
Uh, and half of those are police officers, and the other half are police staff. Uh, and an awful lot of those are from kind of critical support roles, including within HR and kind of what are often regarded as the non-sexy bits of policing, but nonetheless uh, absolutely essential. Um, I, I think, uh, back to the point I was making about these being the most challenging times since the end of the Second World War, uh, I think you've pinpointed precisely one of the reasons why I think that's the case. I mean, actually, when Keith was murdered, God rest his soul, um, the Met's crisis response was pretty good um, in terms of counselling support, occupational support, uh, and you'll know this as well as anyone. Um, uh, policing generally is pretty good in the crisis. Uh, it's anything that requires a bit of advanced planning that we tend to unravel with. Uh, and I think where we're at now with, with policing and mental health is we're getting better at the crisis provision. We are nowhere near at the races when it comes to the routine day-to-day -day provision that recognises you as a homicide detective and, and there are uh, like a list of three dozen roles where that routine exposure to trauma. It, it may be that today we haven't had some horrendous high-profile headline-grabbing attack but it may just be that today is the day where you've heard one story too late, where you've carried one burden too many, when you've inhaled one bit of second-hand smoke too much. Uh, and that kind of routine care, just we're not there with yet. Uh, and then there's a third stage where I think we're even further off with. So crisis intervention we're getting better at. Routine care awful lot of work needed. The third bit is, is basic prevention. So when new recruits join the police now, on the first day that they come through the door, we should be saying two things to them. The first thing is, welcome to the best job in the world. Welcome to the adventure of a lifetime. Because I still think that it is. But the second thing we should say is that over the course of the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, there is an absolute inevitability. It's a 100% guaranteed inevitability that during the course of your policing career, you're going to see some things and going to do some things that would overwhelm any normal human being. Given that that is inevitably going to happen, before you get there, let's give you some tools. Let's prepare you and give you some resources that you can draw on when the time comes. And let's also just make sure you've got telephone number you can pick up and ring and the guarantee that there's someone on the other end of it on the day when you really need a helping hand. So the provision needs to be threefold. Crisis intervention, day-to-day -day care and prevention from the very beginning. Um, just before I finish though, one other point that was kind of um, in the mix in what you said, you finished with 15 years service. Um, I think it's one of the really significant challenges for policing at the moment is the, the loss of mid-service and experienced police officers who are walking away because they're breaking. They're walking away as an act of self-preservation. Now, 90% of what I learned as a police officer, probably 98% of what I learned as a police officer, I learned by experience. I was immeasurably better at my job after 20 years than I was after 20 weeks. Um, and we need to take real care that the loss
loss of those mid-service, highly experienced police officers doesn't turn them from a trickle to a flood. Um, because all there's, there's experience that you just cannot replace. Uh, and I think that for an awful lot of us, an awful lot of the time, we take policing and police officers for granted. Um, the other practical takeaway I'll give you from today, apart from marrying a North Yorkshire farmer's daughter, is next time you see a police officer, whether it's on the gates here or out on the street, just go up and thank them for what they do. It'll be worth it primarily just to see the expression on their faces. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it doesn't happen terribly often. Uh, but I promise you it will be appreciated.